Isaiah 66. For those of you who do not have a high schooler in the house, uh, last night we had an event here. Uh, it was a sort of Hollywood awards ceremony for some movies that our high schoolers made. And I was reminded once again that we live in a culture that is completely obsessed with being noticed. Our insatiable narcissism <laughs> craves incessant attention. Uh, we're saturated in this eye-pleasing, man-serving culture. From the Hollywood stars seeking the brightest spotlight to the lowliest of housewives just desperately longing to be liked, our pride seeks to be thought well of no matter who's looking. Uh, virtue signaling is at an all-time high. Uh, in America today, we, we can't even tell the truth anymore because we're so afraid that we might offend someone and they might not like us. And even as Christians, we struggle with this, right? Our, our minds have been marinating in the manure of this culture for so long that we too are constantly cognizant, always thinking of what others are thinking of us. Sadly, oftentimes, we're interested in what everyone thinks of us except God. With God, of course, we know that he can't be fooled. He can't be fooled by the Instagram you. He can't be fooled by the, the you that you project uh, to those around you. God knows every intention of every thought of our wicked hearts. But wouldn't it be awesome? I mean, wouldn't it be great if we as Christians, if we could take all that sinful ambition, all that desire to be thought well of by men and replace it with the godly desire to be noticed by our Lord. I mean, this would be the ultimate sort of put off, put on. We're, we're called to put off sin and put on righteousness. I mean, if we could slaughter our craving to, to have worldly fame and replace it with an equally zealous ambition for God's name, wouldn't that be something? If our true ambition would be to please the Lord, uh, as Austin exhorted us last week, to have a unified heart for God, to seek his favor. That, of course, only begs the question, like, what could we do that God would notice, right? that would catch God's eye? Of course, for the Hollywood star, they know exactly what to do. Right, I'm in the Hollywood actress. She plans perhaps weeks in advance for that moment that she gets out of the car so that everyone turns their heads and notices her. She knows exactly what to do, how to act, what to say to catch the gaze of men. How could you so live? How could I so live that we would catch the gaze of God? Is there anything that we could do that would so please the Lord that he would look upon us well, that's exactly what God tells us in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, what he's looking for. It's a, it's a very simple outline I have for this morning, just two points, two truths that we must live out for God to gaze at us, two truths that we must live out for God to gaze at us. First is that God is great, and second, that we are nothing. First is that God is great, second, that we are nothing. Nothing. Let's read the text and then I'll set the context for us a bit. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says Yahweh, Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things Thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, we come once again to your word in desperate need. Father, we of our own strength, cannot understand your word, we cannot put it into practice, and we beg that your Holy Spirit would grant us illumination, that we would comprehend the depths of this text, that we would hear your voice this morning speaking to us through this word, that we would comprehend and understand it, and that your spirit would give us strength 
and enable us to obey it for your glory and for your honor, we pray. Amen. Well, <laughs> the first point of our text is that God is great. And God starts in this first verse saying that he does not need a house. And perhaps we're a little bit lost here. We're jumping into the very last chapter of Isaiah. Don't really know the context. So let me set the stage here a little bit. In chapter one, verse one, Isaiah tells us that he is prophesying during the time of from King Uzziah until King Hezekiah. That's about the 700 BC range. And when Isaiah starts his book, the situation is dire. It's, it's really difficult. The, the Assyrian army has sort of ravaged the north. They have exiled the 10 tribes of the north. And Sennacherib and the Assyrian army has marched south and they've set Jerusalem to siege. And Judah, the, the two tribes in the south, they, they really do deserve to be exiled. Uh, they have disobeyed God at every turn. They've been unfaithful to him. And even at this moment, they have sort of put their trust in every nation, every God other than Yahweh. And so in the first half of the book of Isaiah, God really denounces the sin of Israel, condemns every other nation, condemns every other God, and rebukes Israel. But halfway through the book, in a, in a somewhat unexpected turn, Hezekiah repents, he humbles himself before God, and he prays, and the angel of the Lord comes and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and Sennacherib has to return to Assyria. And at this moment, the book of Isaiah sort of takes this shift in tone from this condemnation of their sin to a proclamation of the hope of future restoration through the Messiah. So, Israel remains just as wicked, it's just as sinful as before, but now in the second half of Isaiah, God is promising this future. Uh, this future where Messiah will come and cleanse his people, Isaiah 53, this future where, where God will create a new heaven and a new earth and come and, and reign upon the earth with his people. But it's important to note that whenever the Old Testament speaks of this future restoration, it always does so in the context of a new temple. And I mention that because oftentimes when we're reading Isaiah 66 and God is talking about the fact that he does not need a temple, people take some New Testament truths and try to import them back into the Old Testament and say, oh, okay, God is saying that he doesn't want a temple, he doesn't want Old Testament sacrifices anymore. Well... I mean, those are mysteries that we live in the New Testament, but those would be foreign to Isaiah in Isaiah's day. Uh, God was not telling Israel, I don't want a temple, I don't want your sacrifice. What he's doing, he's correcting their false view of the temple and their false forms of worship. And I want to show you that quickly in the context. If you'll turn back just a few chapters in Isaiah chapter 63, what's going on is that Isaiah's prophesying about the future, a future where the temple's been destroyed, the people of Israel are in trouble, they're suffering, and they're crying out to the Lord, and there's a verb that they repeat many times, and it's, God, look upon us, look down upon us and see our affliction. Notice Isaiah 63, verse 15. <coughs> Isaiah 63, 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation, where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? So Israel's begging God to act on their behalf. Again, in Isaiah 64, verse 9, <coughs> do not be angry beyond measure, O Yahweh, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Uh, verse 12, will you restrain yourself at these things? Forgive me. So I jumped a a few verses there. Uh, but it's this, this repeated uh, verb there, right, that God is, God is being asked to, to look down upon Israel. And the question is, why does Israel ask God to look down upon them with this favor? Well, we find it in verse 11. It says, our holy and glorious house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. All of our precious things have become a waste place. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Yahweh? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? So Israel's desperately asking God to look upon them, to show them favor, and they feel that he is not. They feel that they're under his judgment. And, and the question is why? 
why is God not blessing Israel at this point? And something we see throughout the Old Testament is that Israel, when they did not feel God's blessing, when they were being disciplined by God, they would almost always blame God as the culprit, right? They would say, God, why are you judging us? As if it was God's fault. They would fail to realize that the reason they were suffering is not because Yahweh had broken his covenant promises, but because they had forsaken him. So it's, it's true that God's eye of blessing was not upon Israel at this moment. The question again is, why? For that, a little bit more explicitly, we can see in chapter 65, notice verse 2. Isaiah 65, verse 2, look at God's attitude toward Israel. I have spread out my hands all day long. I mean, God's grace is abundant. His mercy is everlasting. I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. Verse three, a people who continually provoke me to my face. So God tells them that his eye of blessing is not upon them, but it's because of their sin. He's always stood ready to receive their true worship. The problem is that they've been offering up false worship. And this is not just the context leading up to Isaiah 66. It's actually the way that Isaiah continues. Notice in verse 3 of chapter 66, the verse immediately following our text. (coughs) Forgive me. Isaiah 66, verse 3 says, He who slaughters an ox is the one who strikes down a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is the one who offers swine's blood. He who offers a memorial offering of frankincense is the one who blesses wickedness. And again, the question is why? Why would God say that? Why would God have no regard for their offering? Why would God view their sacrifices like murder, like the slaughter of a pig? Did he no longer want their sacrifices? Well, no, that's not the point. God God did demand animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant. The problem is found at the end of verse 3. The problem is not the fact that they were offering these offerings. The problem is, it says at the end of verse 3, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul takes pleasure in their detestable things. God condemns them because their hearts were wicked, which tainted any external form of their worship. Their faith was not in Yahweh. Their heart was not in their worship. And because of the sinful way in which they were sacrificing, their worship was corrupted. God compares their sacrifices to the murder of a man, which he abhors. So God God wants them to pray. God wants them to offer sacrifices. The problem is that their hearts were so full of unbelief that God detested their worship. And you say, well, how can that be? I mean, this is Israel. This is God's chosen people. Well, but of course, not all Israel is Israel, right? There's always a remnant, but most of Israel throughout her history to this day has always been unbelieving. And God was tired of Israel's unbelieving worship and faithless prayers. And this would be like a, a bank robber, right? Standing in, the bank of, uh, standing in the lobby of a bank and he's praying to the Lord, saying, Lord, God of my father Abraham, grant me success today. You're like, okay, baby steps. I mean, you're praying. That's, a, that's an okay thing. But, right, there's something that God wants more than just a prayer. He, he wants faith. He wants obedience. Right? So pray, but without the sin. Sacrifice, but without the sin. God takes no pleasure in unbelieving prayer. God takes no pleasure in unbelieving worship. God does not delight in well-intentioned false worship. In fact, he abhors it. He hates it. It's worse than nothing. Proverbs says, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Psalm adds, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh. (laughs) That's who the Israelites are at this point. They're wicked unbelievers. And God says, look, if you're not going to stop sinning, Look, I don't need your worship. (laughs) No house you build could provide me rest. I don't need a temple, especially if you're going to fill it up with your filthy worship. It's like in Malachi where God screams out to the priest and he says, would someone please just shut the door so I don't have to smell the putrid stench of all this false worship. 
And the Lord would say the same thing to every worshiper throughout history. You say you want to honor me? You say you want to worship me in this culture? Okay, but why? Why are you here this morning? Because if you've come to Grace Church because it helps you feel morally superior to your neighbors, if you march at abortion clinics to feed your own self-righteousness, right? you fill in the blank with what you do. It doesn't matter what kind of worship we're talking about. If we do our righteousness in order to be seen by men, God says, you know what? No. I don't need you. I don't need your help. I don't need your offering. I don't need your worship. I don't need your singing. I would rather the rocks cry out in my greatness than your filthy mouth. God is seeking true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And he explains to us in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, why it is that he doesn't need these false external forms of worship, why he doesn't need in this specific context, why he doesn't need their temple, their house. Both of them have to do with his greatness in this first point. Notice there in verse 1 that Yahweh starts Thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. I love this imagery, right? It's this majestically cosmic image of Yahweh inhabiting the universe. And he's just resting his feet on our little earth. God inhabits millions and millions of galaxies, all of space and time. We're like grasshoppers, Isaiah 40. And Israel says they're going to build him a house. <laughs> and God is going to be able to rest in this house. <laughs> it's like, Lord, you think that the God who fills the heavens with all their millions of galaxies is going to rest inside of the little house you're going to build? I mean, it's laughable. It, it reminds me of the imagery of Genesis 11 that <coughs> me the, the entire human race joins together in one accord to rebelliously build up a tower whose top reaches the heavens so they can make a name for themselves and, and reach the presence of God. And then anthropomorphically, God says that he gets off of his throne and comes down so that he can see their, the little Lego tower that they're building. It's so small he, he can't. I mean, when we, when we try to compete with the Almighty, it's pathetic. So God says, I don't... I don't need your house. And, and this is a truth that they should have understood. Uh, when Solomon dedicated the first temple, he did it with these words. Who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him, who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offering before him? Solomon understood the temple was not for Yahweh. The temple was for Israel, a place where Israel could make sacrifices to him, a place to exalt the greatness of Yahweh. God gives a second reason why he did not need their house. Verse two, notice, for my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares Yahweh. He says, my hand made all these things. To, to what things does he refer all these things? Well, well, let's step back into the imagery once again. Where, where is God speaking from? He says in verse one, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. So imagine the, the imagery God is creating here. All right, God is resting. He's got one arm on the Andromeda galaxy. He's got one hand on the, the edge of the Milky Way and he's resting his feet upon our little earth. And he says, all of this is mine. I made all of it. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. It's all mine. Everything that exists, everything that ever came into being was made by God. God says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and all things. God is essentially saying, well, wait, you want to offer me something? Like, what are you going to give me? Humor me, just, right, just imagine in your mind something that you could give to God. And God says, it's mine. 
It's already mine. I made it all. This is like a child at Christmas time who wants to give a gift to his daddy. And what does he need first? Well, he needs daddy's money <laughs> to buy the gift. And of course, that's, that's wonderful if the child wants to bless his father. But the child wants the money so that he can buy something he himself wants and then gift that to his dad to fulfill his own selfish lusts, that would be pleasing to no father. And that's what Israel's doing. If we're going to worship God, we need to realize that everything is his and we need to start acting like it. <coughs> Paul asks us, what do you have that you did not receive? If you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So God tells us, you want to serve me? Serve me with this mindset. Because, right, I mean, if you want to serve me because you want my name to be feared among the nations, because you love me and you want to make my name great, then serve me with all the strength that I endow. What do you need? Temples, sanctuaries, whatever. But if not, if you want to worship me to make your own name great, no. I don't need your vain, self-exalting worship. I don't need your surface. I don't need anything. God is a God who boasts in his own aseity. He depends on nothing. He needs no one. Right? We have nothing to offer God. Everything is already his. The only thing we can do is give him back the life we already owe him. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our sacrifices. He doesn't need our temples. The amazing thing is that even though God does not need us, he does want to bless us. Isn't that amazing? He does enjoy using us. Right? In fact, as, as we think through the rest of the canon, as we sort of enter toward the new covenant, we realize that when we repent and believe in Jesus, God makes us his temple. God dwells in us. John 14, 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. The whole trinity dwelling within us. Foreshadowing the future reality that someday in the future, God's going to make new heavens and a new earth and dwell with us physically for all eternity. It's our future home. To enjoy God who does not need us but who does enjoy blessing us, a God who is and who rewards those who earnestly seek him. And Israel knows that. Israel knows who God is. Israel knows that God is a God full of mercy and grace and compassion, which is why they're so frustrated, which is why they're, they're crying out, why are you not blessing us, Yahweh? You're a God of blessing. And God's first point was just, I'm not blessing you because you do not understand my greatness. You don't understand how big I am nor how rich I am. And it is impossible to worship God when we do not understand who he is. We can't worship God if we don't know his attributes, if we don't know his perfections. If you are ignorant of his attributes, you will only be worshiping the idol that you've fabricated in your own mind. God says, if you're going to worship me, you need to understand my greatness. That's about God. Now he shifts it to us, to the worshiper. And he says, but this is the one that I'm looking for. Second half of verse two, if we're gonna catch God's eye, if God's gonna look at us, we need to understand that we are nothing. But to this one, I will look. Right? God's saying, if you wanna catch my eye, here's what I'm looking for. Obviously, again, this is sort of anthropomorphic language. This is God describing himself in human terms so we can understand it. God does not have eyes. God doesn't have to look anywhere because God is everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. So uh, when we see here in the context that God is looking, uh, this speaks to his favor towards us. Uh, we've already seen that throughout the context of Isaiah, that Israel's asking God, look down upon us, have favor upon us. In the Psalms, the word look is often used in synonymous parallelism with, with having regard for or blessing. 
Well, Israel has asked God to, to look down upon them and to bless them. And God says, okay, you want to catch my eye of blessing? First, understand how great I am. Second, if you want me to notice you and bless you, you need to understand that you're nothing. Here are the three characteristics I'm after. First, I look to the one who is humble. Isaiah has already emphasized this many times. A verse you might have memorized, Isaiah 57, verse 15, where God says, Thus says the one high and lifted up who dwells forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place with the crushed and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. Right? The almighty God who dwells in the heavens, who's created all things, who does he dwell with? He dwells with the humble and contrite. Humility is a, an emphasis in scripture, right? It's uh, a quality that, that God admires throughout the scriptures. Uh, literally, the word in, in Hebrew here in Isaiah 66, 2, means poor. Most of the times it occurs in Isaiah, it's translated afflicted. Uh, it speaks to someone who literally has nothing. That's the one that God is looking for, the one who knows that they have nothing, nothing to offer God. Jesus in the Beatitudes starts there. It's the poor in spirit that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's the, the man who understands that he's spiritually bankrupt. It's the tax collector who can't even lift his head to heaven but just cries out for mercy. It's the poor in heart that know that they deserve nothing. They do not consider themselves as superior to others because they know, they know who they are. Humility, in a sense, is just understanding that, understanding who you are before God. What are you before God? You're, you're dust. You're dust in which the great king has breathed his life so that you could serve him. And the moment you elevate yourself above the dust, the moment that you believe that you should be served instead of serving, then you've fallen into the mother of all sins, which is pride. Because we are God's slaves created to serve him. And we'll, we'll develop that a little bit more, but I wanted to take just a few moments uh, given the, the culture and the world that we live in, to, to speak of two forms of false humility, two ways that the world talks about humility that have nothing to do with what Isaiah is talking about. The world, when it talks about humility, is often just rebranding their pride as a form of humility, but it is not. The first way they do that is to sort of self-deprecate, to deliberately speak poorly of yourself so that others may exalt you. Right, you know that person that is constantly talking about how terrible they are and how horrible they are at things. Like, oh, man, that was an awful sermon. And, and why are they saying that? Oh, I'm such a bad preacher. No, Josiah, you're not, that wasn't such a bad sermon. You're not such a bad preacher. Right, that, that's a form of false humility that does not honor God. True humility speaks the truth with pure motives. This is a a trend that, that happens throughout the, the globe. In Mexico, there's a the common phrase that says, te tiras para que te levanten. And the idea is you deliberately threw yourself on the floor so that you'd be picked up. Because right? that's what you're after. You're after the praise of men. We can't do that. We need to speak the truth. The second form of false humility is a, is a lack of certainty, a lack of dogmatism. Our, our culture believes that if you speak in absolutes, that you're arrogant, that you're bigoted. But being sure that the Bible is true is not prideful. The Bible calls it faith. The Bible calls it virtuous. So we, we ought to speak the truth. We ought to, to say what the Bible says. The question has to deal with the heart in which we speak that. And I think one of the greatest examples of a of a man who does both things well, who speaks the truth and yet who does it humbly is, is John the Baptist. You look at the ministry of John the Baptist and he is a, he's a tough cookie. I mean, he is preaching at the Pharisees. He's calling them vipers and snakes. He's calling them to flee from the wrath to come. And in the same paragraph that he's calling them to repentance, he's expressing his genuine belief that he is unworthy and unfit to untie his master's shoes. 
That's an amazing combination in one man. Someone who is so certain of God's truth and who speaks with such dogmatism and yet has a, such a grasp of his own unworthiness. And I think that, that rare combination is one of the reasons why Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest man to ever live. And, and I think John, in a sense, gives us a, a formula of what we ought to strive for in being humble. And that is that the more I behold the Savior, the more I see the exaltation, the majesty and grandeur of Christ, the more I'm going to understand that I'm nothing in comparison, right? Because Christ is great. And, and not just because of the things we saw in point one. Christ is great not just because he's almighty God, not just because he inhabits the heavens, not because he created all things with the word of his power, but <clears throat> because Christ, who is God almighty, united that deity with a genuine humanity and became a perfect example for us of humility. You see, God does not only demand these qualities of us, he also embodies them in the person of Christ. Christ being Lord of God did not consider equality with God something he had to hold on to, that position. But he came to earth and was born of the Virgin Mary. And being a man, he didn't make himself out to be the king of men, but he humbled himself to be the slave of men and then died the death of a criminal, death on the cross. From the, the highest exaltation to the lowest debasement. That's humility. We can't even humble ourselves that much because we start so low in comparison to him. Jesus deserved to be served, and yet he served. It tells us another thing about humility, and that is that humility is not something that stays in the heart. Humility is something that, that bears fruit in the way that it speaks, in the way that it acts. Because Jesus, a man who was truly humble, sat in that upper room with Judas and with the other disciples. And he wrapped a towel around his waist and he washed their filthy feet. He didn't consider himself above the task. So you who say that you long for God to look down upon you with blessing, you who say that you want to catch God's gaze, the question is, where's your towel? Why is there no towel wrapped around your waist? Why is it that so often you find yourself handing a towel to others to serve you? And the answer is because you think you deserve to be served. We're prideful. We say, I'm, I'm a member of Grace Community Church. I know the truth. And we begin to interact with others with a certain air of superiority about us. Obviously, coming to Grace Church is not a bad thing. Just like building a temple wasn't a bad thing. But just remember that our worship is repugnant to God that rises up to him from a proud and unbelieving heart. We must fight our pride at every moment. Right, when we came to Christ, we enlisted in a war, a war against our flesh. Romans 8, Paul says, you will be killing your flesh or your flesh will be killing you. Right? My worst enemy, I wake up with him every single morning, Josiah James Grumman. And both of us can't come out of this war alive. We have to wage war. And it's hard because we live in a culture, we live in a world that, that feeds self at every turn. Where we're constantly fed this lie that we need more self-esteem. I was reading an article this week that it was talking about the, the need to prioritize self-care. <laughs> what is that garbage? I mean, can you imagine Jesus after not eating for a couple of days and spending all night in prayer, like telling his disciples to prioritize self-care? Does a slave have the luxury to prioritize self-care? A slave has one purpose, and that's to serve his master. We need to understand who we are before God. We're dust, we're slaves. But you want to know the most amazing thing? The day that by God's mercy and grace, you truly believe that you're nothing, 
The moment you live in light of who you really are, a cadaver dead in your sins that received the grace of God, the instant that you stop striving for the praise of men, in that moment you'll catch the gaze of Almighty God. (laughs) What an amazing truth. The last becomes first. So I beg you, if you wanna be famous this morning, don't settle for the fame of the world. Seek to be seen by the Savior the only one who matters. Make it your ambition for your humility to be known by him. God adds a second characteristic, not just humble, not just poor, also contrite in spirit. The word contrite is not a word that we use often in our vernacular. It's not used often in the Old Testament either. It's probably only used three times. And the other two times it's used in the Old Testament It literally means crippled. It's used in 2 Samuel 4 and 9, talking about Mephibosheth and his crippled feet. And I think that very concrete physical language helps us understand what God is after in the spiritual realm. It's why he says he wants someone who's crippled in spirit. The point is that God is looking for someone who knows that they're spiritually quadriplegic. When we think about being crippled in our day, it's obviously very difficult, but even more so in Isaiah's day, with no wheelchairs, with no hospitals, no health care. A cripple in Isaiah's day could do one thing. What was that? Just beg. Just beg. So in this list of three qualities God's after, first God says that he's looking for someone who's spiritually poor, who's humble. And now we learn that this poor man is also a spiritual cripple. God is looking for a a beggar sitting at the corner knowing he has nothing. No ability to get anywhere or do anything without help. And that is who we are. We are completely and totally dependent upon God. Spiritually, we have nothing. We're poor. Spiritually, we can do nothing because we're crippled. We're poor, which means we have no merit. We're crippled, which means we can do nothing to earn God's favor. And this this imagery is used often in scripture, not just poor, but also crippled, incapacitated. Reminded of the story where where Jesus in the gospels, he he picks up a baby. And what does he say? He says, if you're gonna get into the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like this baby. And I think that we're meant to ask, (laughs) Jesus, how's a baby gonna get anywhere? Answer, same way a cripple is going to get there, carried by someone else. My friend, you will be carried into heaven in the mighty arms of Jesus, or you will fall into hell on your own merit. But there is no third option. There is no other way. And nothing that you do matters until you understand that. Famous words of Melanchthon, We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And no sacrifice you make, no offering you raise to God is acceptable to him until you believe that, until you know that. Because if you believe that on your own merit, you can please God, if you believe that by your own works you can offer something to God that is acceptable to him, then you might as well sacrifice a pig and raise the rank stench of hog's blood to his nostrils. Because God hates, God abhors prideful worship. And again, that's so important for us to understand because it's so easy for us. Even as Christians, it's so easy for us to think ourselves better than others. Especially in this day and age, especially in this city. Right? In a culture as debased as ours. Right? We live in a country that thinks it's okay to murder babies. We we live in a country that doesn't even understand basic biology. We kind of chuckle at that because it's so ridiculous. But how easy is it for that chuckle to sort of start to become this thought that I'm better than them, I'm superior to them. How easy it is to start to denounce the sin of the world and then begin to think that we're superior to the sinners we're condemning. 
And we must remember that God's gaze is far from every proud heart. We have the truth here at Grace Church. Praise the Lord. Our world needs it. But we cannot forget that we are crippled beggars. And we must live completely dependent upon God and his grace at all times. We are nothing without his grace. Remember Ephesians 2. We too were dead in our trespasses and sins. Like, are you really, are you really going to argue that God chose you because you were a better cadaver than your neighbor? Because you weren't. It's all of God's grace. Well, the last and final characteristic God is looking for, he said, is the one who trembles at his word. What does that mean, to tremble at God's word? Well, in short, it means to obey God. And, and we see that in the context in verse 5. Uh, the author uses it in a synonymous way with those who obey. Hear the word of Yahweh, you who tremble at his word. Same thing in Ezra 9.4. Those who tremble at God's word is a phrase that becomes shorthand to those who obey. And obviously, there's a lot of sort of implications that rise up out of that statement. Obviously, I can't tremble at God's word if I don't know it. So I need to read the Bible, I need to memorize it, I need to meditate upon it. In short, to tremble at God's word means to obey the Bible. God's looking for those who obey the Bible. And you say, wait, Josiah, that was kind of a leap there. You went from trembling at God's word to obeying the Bible. Well, I mean, that's first how it's used in the context, but it's it's how it's used in the rest of the Bible as well. And I I want to show you a, a text that makes this comparison. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to read a few verses uh, starting in verse 18. Hebrews 12, 18. Where the author is going to make this amazing comparison between the way that God spoke to Israel at Sinai and the way that he speaks to us today through the Bible. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, says the following, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. That's Sinai. This is Exodus 19 and 20. To a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which was such that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear what was being commanded. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. So terrible was what appeared that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So again, that's Exodus 19 and 20. God's thundering out of heaven. Israel's trembling in fear. We've not come to that mountain, Mount Sinai. We've come to a greater mountain, Hebrews 12, 22. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the festal gathering and the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, the point. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Right? This is a present participle. He's saying, God is speaking to you right now in this written word. God is speaking to you with a word superior to the one he spoke at Sinai, because this one's about Jesus. And so you better tremble more than they did, or your judgment's going to be worse than theirs was. Verse 25, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. This is God warning us from heaven. This book, this word of God. So let me ask you a question. If at this moment God rent open the roof of this sanctuary, and there was an earthquake and the ground quaked, the sky peeled with thunder, and God spoke and cried out, pray without ceasing. What would you do? I think I know what we'd all do. We'd all fall on our faces, trembling, quaking, terrified. And in unison, we'd all reply what? Yes, Lord. And the question is this. Then why do you act differently when you read 1 Thessalonians 5.17? 
because God is looking for the one who trembles at his every word. This word is not less the word of God than God's spoken word. God is looking for the one who trembles in obedience to every one of his words. And not just a physical trembling, right? Israel physically trembled at the sound of God's voice at Mount Sinai, and they all perished and died and went to hell. God's looking for a deeper trembling, a soul trembling. In the same way that, that Isaiah says, God is looking for the one who is poor, and he means poor in spirit that is humble. He's looking for the crippled, that is the crippled in spirit. He's also looking for the one who trembles, not just physically, but whose soul trembles when he reads the word of God because he longs so desperately to obey because he fears God. God is looking for the one who's going through a tough time in his life. And read James 1. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of every kind. He says, yes, Lord. God's looking for the one who's, who's walking through the most difficult valley of the shadow of death that they have faced in their life and reads, be thankful in all things and trembles and says, yes, Lord. God's looking for the one who reads, make disciples of all nations and responds, here am I, send me, Lord. God's looking for the one who trembles at every one of his words. I hope as we bring this message to a conclusion that there's this overwhelming sense of unworthiness that we all feel. And I, I hope that after studying Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, that we would all come to the conclusion, I want so badly to be that one to whom God would look. I want so desperately to catch God's gaze. But if this is what it takes, perfect humility, complete contrition, and trembling before every word of God, then I have never and will never earn God's gaze. I will never earn God's eye of blessing. I am not humble like I should be. I am not contrite like I should be. And I certainly do not obey and tremble before every one of God's words. And so, if God only looks to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word, I hope you see that there can be only one who has earned God's gaze. Only one. There is and has ever only been one man that deserves God's eye of blessing. Only one who is humble. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey. Only one contrite in spirit who's co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and yet made himself of no repute, becoming the slave of men. Only one who earned God's gaze based on his own reverent fear, obeying every single one of God's holy words fulfilling the law perfectly on our behalf. Only one with whom God is well pleased. Christ alone has God's gaze. In Christ alone does the Father delight eternally. The Father gazes only upon one who is exactly as he should be, an exact reflection of God's perfections in every way. Do you want to know the most incomprehensible mystery in perhaps the entire Bible? If you have forsaken your own righteousness, if you have begged God to clothe you in Christ's righteousness, if you have forsaken the fame of this world and sought for God to forgive you, if you have trusted in Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day, if you are in Christ this morning, then in Christ, God looks at you in the same way he looks at his beloved son. God loves you in the way that he loves 
is beloved. John 17, 23, the Father loves us even as he loves the Son. What an amazing truth. Does that not make your heart ache and long to be as the Father sees you in Christ? Do you not long to be like that one, to actually be humble and contrite and tremble at God's words? My friend, look to Jesus. He is great. He is almighty God. Even the heavens cannot contain him. He is the creator of you and me and everything in this world. But he also became a man. He humbled himself to die for sinners, to set us free. May our ambition be to set our gaze upon him, upon his humility, upon his contrition, upon his reverence, so that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit might transform us into that image that God delights in, that we could be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, not even the heavens can contain you. You are great. Your majesty is beyond our ability to describe. You are our creator, our sustainer. And we do long that your name be hallowed. We pray that you would help us to make it our ambition to please you, to honor you, and for your name to be glorified. Help us to stop seeking for our own fame and to seek your glory alone. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. We're beggars in need of bread. We're beggars in need of forgiveness. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We, we need you. We're nothing. Help us to live like that in humility. Be like our Savior. It's for his namesake that we pray. Amen.